Hello, and welcome back to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. This week, we're travelling back to 18th century colonial Jamaica. We are joined by Dr. Erin Trahey, Assistant Professor of Early American History at Cambridge University. Dr. Trahey's work examines the challenge that free, mixed race and extraordinarily rich sugar heiresses pose to Jamaica's colonial hierarchy. Entitled Power Ever Follows Property, Sugar Heiresses and the Devises Act of 1761, Dr. Trahey's paper interrogates attempts made by colonial authorities to control Jamaica's free population of colour. We are delighted to be able to discuss Dr. Trahey's work as her first book project, Free Women of Jamaica, Property, Race and Power in Jamaican Slave Society, 1760-1834, Take Shape. Alongside Dr. Trahey, we have Shay Hendry, a first-year PhD student in history. Shay's research is focused on loyalist exiles in the age of revolution, but she is also interested in transoceanic exchange, refugee communities and international correspondence networks. In other words, Shay is ideally suited for this conversation. Thanks for tuning in, and I'm your host, Hugh Wood, a PhD candidate at Sydney Sussex College. So, hello, uh, welcome back. We are once again in Cambridge. It's the 2nd of December, misty, grey, uh, but lovely over the rooftops. So today we're joined by Erin Trahey um, and Shay Hendry, um, who is a PhD student at Cambridge. So we're just going to start with Erin introducing the paper, um, where it sits in her larger project, the kind of time and date, where we are. So people who've not read it we know what's going on so yeah yeah thank you so much for having me um yeah so this paper which is called power ever follows property sugar heiresses and the devises act of 1761 is a chapter from my forthcoming book uh, which is entitled free women of jamaica property race and power in jamaican slave society 1760 to 1834 um, yeah, sorry. Um, so the chapter itself looks at the passage of what was called the Devises Act in colonial Jamaica, um, which was passed in 1761 um, after the outbreak of Tacky's Revolt, which was the most significant slave rebellion in the British Atlantic world, um, and in fact, the Atlantic world prior to uh, what we now know as the Haitian Revolution. Um, and so the act was passed by the Jamaican House of Assembly, which was, of course, the colonial legislature for the colony of Jamaica. And um, it did several things. First, it limited the amount of property that free people of color uh, in Jamaica could inherit to 2,000 pounds Jamaican or about 1,200 pounds sterling. And it also... Um, sort of limited or adjusted the parameters of whiteness in the colony, um, meaning that you had to be four degrees removed from an African ancestor to pass as white rather than three degrees, which has had been um, the law previously. So the chapter sort of takes that as a focus and looks at um, the experiences of free women of color, um, most of whom were the daughters of white men, usually planters or merchants, and enslaved or free women of color. And the chapter shows that um, actually that the act's passage was led in no small part um, because of 
metropolitan concern and also colonial concern about the wealth in the hands of free people of color, particularly free heiresses of color, um, who actually made up the majority of legatees who are sort of in concern. Um, and um, they had inherited a very large sum of money um, and also plantations and real estate from white fathers or white um, relatives. Um, so the chapter follows the stories of several of these heiresses in particular, and also more broadly shows how the act impacted the lives of free people of color in Jamaica more broadly, limiting the amount of property they can inherit, um, confining them to do certain types of work in Jamaica, and also uh, driving them to live mostly in urban spaces. And the act was really significant because in limiting the amount of, of property that free people of color could inherit, it prevented the sort of creation of this large planter class of color, um, particularly those who might have been involved in sugar production or coffee production, like we see in Saint-Domingue. I think before um, the revolution, Haitian Revolution in Saint-Domingue, um, free people of color owned about 70% of coffee farms. So they really were a very strong landholding class, exercised a lot of power. But I think that what sort of my chapter also does is it shows that there were these limitations, but at the same time, what's really particular about Jamaica is that there was a system of privilege acts which were put in place, which allowed well-connected free people of color to petition for special legal rights. Um, they could either petition themselves or um, a white relative might petition on their behalf. And over the course of the 18th century, I think there were 700 of these petitions that were approved and passed, and they conveyed uh, greater rights upon um, a free person of color. So uh, initially, they might have conveyed all of the rights of a white person. Uh, over time, that shifted. They became a bit more limited. Uh, but still, um, having these rights was really significant because it allowed a free woman of color, for example, to you know, own large plantations, uh, operate perhaps as a, an independent agent within this economy. Um, and also significantly, a lot of these uh, women didn't marry, which meant that they could then hold property as a femme sole rather than a femme covert, which essentially, and for British 18th century common law, meant that you know, they could hold property on their own without the control of a husband. So, so that's significant. Um, some of these heiresses also were sought after, of course, in the metropole um, by um, men willing, you know, desiring to get rich, of course, because they had these fortunes, and so their marriage prospects were also you know, significant. Um, and so you see also some of these heiresses of color marrying into um, the British aristocracy, which is in itself, I think, a very interesting sort of um, topic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you. That's really yeah. um, good introduction to the thank paper. Thank you. So, Shave, you just want to jump in with, yeah. the, uh, with the question? So I guess my first question is maybe a little bit contextual given something you mentioned somewhat briefly in the paper is that the devices act is overturned in 1814 yes and i guess i'm then wondering is that if this is such an effective measure in controlling kind of social and racial racial hierarchy 
um, particularly as the free people of color population is increasing in Jamaica? Mm. What's the kind of rationale for overturning it? Yeah, so um, that 1814, so the overturning of of the Devizes Act, um, well, it was really significant for free people of color, and it came as a result of over a decade's worth of petitioning by free people of color um, petitioning for greater rights. Um, these were free men of color. They were also free women of color. And these petitions are, are fascinating to read. Um, they actually were happening across the Caribbean at this time, um, partly sort of um, reacting to what had happened you know, as part of the Haitian Revolution. Um, and these petitions were asking for greater rights. They were asking for the right to vote. Uh, you know, equal property rights, greater protections in the in court of law, um, because also prior to 1814, a free person of color could not defend themselves in court against a white person, um, unless you were one of these people whose privilege acts allowed for that. And this was quite damaging, and that you could they could own property, but they couldn't they couldn't defend it. Um, so that's sort of how this came about in 1814. Um, it didn't mean full equal rights that that didn't come about till later but it was for part of this movement um which is really significant mm. yeah so i just kind of want to ask you about the sources you've been using um and their relationship to the story that you that you tell um so you kind of state that these very rich heiresses are not the specific targets of the devices act um and that its impact is felt mostly in this middle class, which is denied social mobility. Um, but the sources you're using are from the wills, probates and court cases of the rich folk, basically. So how are we telling that middle class story, um, the denial, the absence, with the sources that you do have, which relate predominantly to the upper classes? Yeah, that's a great question. So. A lot of, so I mean, a lot of the research I do is sort of wringing out sort of expansive stories from very fragmentary mm -hmm. material. And that's what you have to do when you study the lives of, of women of color, whether they be enslaved or free or in these colonial spaces. Um, but actually, uh, in one of my chapters, I look at the enterprise of free women of color in urban spaces. And those would primarily have been, they weren't wealthy women. Um, and they took part in all sorts of different work. They bought property in urban spaces. They rented it out. They took part in sort of like clothing production. Um, they ran um, taverns, um, all sorts of other sort of industries involved in food and hospitality. Um, but in those cases, I am still often using wills. And what's interesting is even women of color who weren't that wealthy, when they died, as long as they had, they owned maybe a few slaves or they owned a home, um, they would have probated a will. And so even there, I can look at their probate inventory, which basically lists all the property that they owned, as well as the will, which says what they owned and who they gave it to when they died. Um, and so those are typically the sources I'm using in addition to tax records, um, census records when they're available, but those are very inconsistently uh, sort of produced. Um, also, you know, travelers' narratives, narratives of other, you know, white people, free people of color, but um, still wills are really useful even if someone wasn't wealthy. So I think that's an interesting sort of thing to think about because you don't see this in other parts of early America, the number of wills of free people of color even if they aren't super affluent. Mm -hmm. If I could just um, kind of follow up a bit. Uh, we, this, the, the women in this are rich and well off. 
are there stories that appear in the archives um, where women have been denied inheritances in the courts due to the Devices Act that we're seeing? Does that show up or, you know, how would it show up? Whereabouts? Yes, it does show up. And I've actually got a chapter that looks specifically at court cases, um, particularly cases. So the chancery courts are where you find a lot of cases with sort of wranglings over inheritance. Um, And yeah, you do see cases of women who were taking cases to court um, about, you know, because they were denied their inheritances. Sometimes you see this when they were women of color living in Britain. and they've got um, largely white British male relatives who have taken their inheritances um, or refusing to give it to them, withholding it from them, which is causing them usually great detriment. And there are, some of them are living in poverty. Um, their fathers are often dead, and so they have no more sort of legal recourse that way. Um, and these 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 suits were super expensive, so they, they they lasted sometimes decades, and so the women had to be able to fund them over that period, and so that obviously limited who could who could even take part in this. Um, you also see cases of women bringing um, um, these suits to court because um, they were denied their inheritance, but also sometimes abused by their their father's executors, um, sometimes re- almost reenslaved. Um, you know, made to live in certain restricted parts of the house, not given their money like their father, you know, intended. So I think that the court cases show the real vulnerability um, and abuse that a lot of these women experienced, even if they were free, even if they had been born into sort of privileged families, it wasn't all great. You know, it was, there was a lot of uh, exploitation that still went on. Is there enough material and maybe this is kind of outside the scope of your methodology but is there enough material you found to do some kind of quantitative analysis with the idea that I believe it says in the paper there's around 3,000 three people of color in the 1760s living in Jamaica Um, or we have Stan Hope's report which you mentioned in the chapter that names 27 women although I know only seven of which really consistently show up in the archive later on and so I guess I'm wondering, was part of your approach to think about scope or um, any sort of quantitative approach? Yeah, so um, I do look at large samples of wills of, that were probated by white men, that were probated by white women, and also by free women of color. Um, and usually they're, you know, they're taken in a very measured way over a certain period. Um, and I looked at hundreds and hundreds of wills. Um, what is challenging about doing that? What's challenging about even saying, could we look at every free woman of color's will that was probated in this period? They don't always identify as a woman of color. Mm -hmm. So it is so difficult to even figure out. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they will say a free black woman or free woman of color. But sometimes they don't. And the only way you can figure that out is by combining that analysis with probate inventories or letters or wills or census records, that sort of thing. So I think the challenge in any sort of accuracy of doing any sort of large study like that would be identifying who we're even sort of looking at. And then the other problem is the archives are in a state in which so many of these documents don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we have no, uh, there's no real uh, record of 
a lot of it is just, you know, what for people of color were saying in their letters, oh, there was this many people living in Kingston. Um, what I'm saying is the, the records are so scattered and they're so sparse that it, bringing any of that sort of larger picture is really difficult. It's something I would really love to do, but I think it would just, it would be really challenging. Yeah, yeah. And if I could just jump in here about your sources, where where are you looking for them? Where are your archives? Um, what kind of other challenges have you faced um, other than age? And Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, part of the difficulty is even when I would go to the Jamaican archives, sometimes a will would be available one year and I go back and they've taken it out of, of circulation because it's just crumbling. So that's part of the difficulty is because of the climate of Jamaica. Um, the archives have been relocated several times. Um, things have just gotten lost. But a lot of the, the records I look at, I've looked at archives in um, mostly in Jamaica. So the Jamaica Registrar General, um, as well as the um, Island Record Office in uh, Spanish Town, Jamaica. Um, I've also looked at um, all kinds of archives in the UK. So um, the British Museum, the British Library, the National Archives, uh, archive, the National Archives up in Scotland, also lots of regional archives across the UK, especially in Scotland, and also some in England, um, also some archives in the US as well. So I spent some time at the Library Company of Philadelphia, which has an amazing um, African-American history and Caribbean history um, archival collection. So I've spent some time there um, in the Library Company of, uh, sorry, I mentioned that, but the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. Brilliant. Um, so I kind of want to zoom out slightly and put the Devices devices Act um, into its kind of wider context. So you talked about Tacky's Rebellion, um, which would seem to play quite a large role in it, but kind of shows up just as a contextual thing within the chapter itself. So was this legislation part of a slew of kind of reactionary laws passed to shore up this white-dominated social order after that? Um, and... Why, when mixed-race people helped to maintain that social order and fought with the whites during Taki's Rebellion, are they then attacked with this legislation, as you're kind of suggesting in the chapter? So what's kind of going on more broadly that helps us to understand it? Yeah, so yeah, so Taki's Revolt, as I mentioned at the start, was the most significant slave rebellion in the British Atlantic world up to this point. Um, it, it happened, there were sort of different, um, it wasn't one event, it happened across various sort of uh, revolts across the island. It was, it took a long time for authorities to put it down um, and to quell the revolt. Um, in many ways it was quite successful. Um, Vincent Brown has written a, an amazing analysis of it and sort of the African roots of Taki's Revolt as well, just to pitch that. <laughs> um, but. I think, yeah, this Devices Act was, was one part of broader legislation passed after this revolt. And this legislation was targeting both free people of color, but also enslaved people. So you see laws passed, including the Devices Act. There was also a Deficiency Act passed that targeted free people of color, which limited um, their participation in the plantation enterprise by, um, by um, making sure that they had a certain number of white employees, which made it difficult for them to own a plantation. Um, you also see um, laws passed that limit the freedoms of enslaved people um, to do things like gather, um, to practice uh, obia. Um, obia became criminalized, really, in the years following Taki's revolt. What's obia? Sorry. Yeah, so it was a set of sort of spiritual practices um, that uh, were 
sort of spiritual, religious practices, but also um, could be done to uh, incite harm in some cases. Uh, so white authorities thought, of course. Um, and But really up until this point, um, you know, enslaved people have been allowed to practice this as sort of however they please, and it really wasn't until this legislation that um, that, that became criminalized and people were actually prosecuted for it, um, like Diana Payton has shown in her book. So. so then I guess thinking again about these women, because I think part of what I found so fascinating about your chapter is this idea of the petitioning process yeah. to gain this legal status of whiteness. Yeah. And so part of what I was kind of wondering, I think, as I read was, is this a process kind of on a wider scale to, in some respects, create white women because there is perhaps a a scarcity of white women in Jamaica. And so there's this opportunity through the legal system to create this kind of acceptable supply of white women who can then be attractive on this kind of international marriage market and so on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. I think that is part of it. And you think about colonial Jamaica in the 18th century and the demography of it. Uh, Part of the reason that so many of these mixed race families came about was because there were not as many white women living Mm -hmm. there, right, comparatively. um, Think about British America more broadly. Um, And um, there was a black majority from a very early period. So um, I do think that was part of the sort of impetus in the in the in the creation of this um, petitioning process was to create basically a surrogate class of whites um, w- or people who were um, you know, almost had white status mm-hmm. right who were um, in, you know invested in slavery often they supported the interests of the um, planter class in most cases mm-hmm. um, you don't see sort of any sort of anti-slavery contingents that were coming out of this group of people they were mm-hmm. slave owning um, they were very involved in this sort of plantation system um, so yeah I do I do think that was definitely definitely part of it um so then I guess with these women specifically because I think it's such an interesting complication mm-hmm. of our understanding of slave societies um and perhaps women's role in that. Yeah. And so my question then would be how do you see them even though they are relatively few as really kind of complicating this larger understanding of slavery and how it functioned in these places. Yeah, well, I think, you know, there may have only been the sort of 3% that were really wealthy, but the fact is that free women of color were a very considerable slave-owning class, uh, free people of color generally. Um, of the wills, the hundreds of wills I've looked at, I, I think it was 98% of free women of color owned a slave wow. or more. Wow. So it was actually more than white women. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in sort of in relation to the number of free people of color. So they were consistently owning enslaved people. And um, and and I think one of the real interventions of, of the book, it, and it's not so much part of this chapter, but thinking about how free people of color owned enslaved people and took part in this system of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what I show is that, you know, they did it to profit. They they owned enslaved people as a means of profit. But you also see them owning enslaved people in some cases as a means of sort of challenging the system of slavery in that they would purchase people to free them. 
they would purchase people to protect them. Um, these were often relatives. It might have been their mother, their you know their father, their children. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just the ways in which these women were working within this system of slavery, I think really adds to our broader understanding of not just the role of free black people within slave societies, but the way that they sometimes challenge systems of, of exploitation as well mm -hmm. as profited from them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, do you, I was wondering whether you wanted to yeah. go to the last question. So then next question. Um, it seems relatively unique within the slave system that there would be a place for mixed race women to legally gain access to whiteness. Mm -hmm. So is this something that is unique to Jamaica specifically? Or do we see it elsewhere? Yes. Um, so the question is, well, the answer is that within British America, within the British American colonies and all the British Caribbean, it is unique to Jamaica. Um, you don't you don't see this happening anywhere else. Um, in Barbados, it was more difficult to even become free. To become emancipated was more expensive, and then white planters um, dominate a lot of the land holding, so it was also more difficult for free people of color to own property in Barbados. And there was also just no legal system that sort of allowed for this. The only similar um, the only similar similar sort of phenomenon we see is in some of the Spanish colonies. Um, and it was, I think, for a short time in the 18th century, a small number of free people of color petitioned to gain the full rights of whites. Uh, I think it was called the Gracias El Sacar uh, system. So you, you do see that in the Spanish colonies, which is interesting. And I think, you know, because Jamaica was obviously Spanish before it was English, um, makes us think a lot about sort of the legal legacies of that and how it impacted hierarchies of race um, and whiteness. Yeah, so I kind of um, want to ask about the rhetorical strategies you use throughout this. So, and how as well do you write about these women who are ultimately slaveholding women and completely ensnared and enmeshed within this exploitative system, but themselves are being exploited by it as well? So how do we kind of balance that sympathy with also, I guess, the kind of... Uh, a more critical edge um, and tell these women as you know having really complicated stories um, in the back. yeah yeah it's a difficult balance to strike I think um, but these women were certainly as slave owners were part of a larger phenomenon of um, black female slave owners across the sort of black Atlantic world at this time you see this in in Senegal um, and Gore, especially um, Hillary Jones, Bronwyn Everill, and others have, have written about the, the presence of these women who operate within sort of colonial ports and slave societies um, who often benefited from slavery. Um, and I think specifically thinking about this colonial context in Jamaica, um, they were also oppressed. And so is they were in a, a difficult position in that they were exploited as well. Even as free people, they were often very vulnerable, subject to abuse. Um, navigating, I think, a world which was very difficult. And a lot of the women that I see, they were, you know, became involved in this often very exploitative sort of concubinage system um, in order perhaps to gain better opportunities for their children. I think it's difficult to say this. I think it's a, it's a very complicated situation they were in, and um, it's often a place with no good choices. 
Um, and I think it's just sort of reckoning with that difficulty and that complexity um, as we think about their positions that they occupied really within this Black Atlantic world more broadly. Yeah, so I'll just, I'll ask one more question, and that's again about the role that they played within the world and the kind of contradictory position that they held. So you kind of suggest that they are the epitome of a challenge to a social and racial hierarchy, but also that they play a role within it. You refer to this rich um, mixed race planter class as a critical buffer between the rich white colonial order and I suppose the free people of colour middle class. Mm -hmm. So how are they inhabiting that position? How does that kind of contradiction that they're both a challenge but also a support function in um, the kind of real world, I suppose? Um, well, yeah, I think it's just that, you know, in the way that they own slaves, um, they were both profiting from a system which obviously exploited thousands and thousands and thousands of enslaved black men and women, um, but, you know, um, equally themselves were not given the full rights of white persons, even if they were very wealthy. Um, so they occupy, I think, a rather liminal space in this mm -hmm. society. Um, for example, they, even if they were wealthy, would not have been able to sit in Anglican churches alongside white people. Even in the graveyard, which I think is really sort of a sort of profound way of thinking about this, they were pushed to the peripheries. You don't see them. Even if they were really wealthy, they weren't buried alongside wealthy white people. They weren't invited to governor's balls, um, events like that. So, yeah, so they're existing within the society. They're really, they're impacting and shaping the free black community um, as well as the economy in a really vibrant, dynamic ways. But yet they weren't ever, I think, fully seen as sort of equal, equal, equal players alongside whites. Brilliant. Um, yeah, so we're kind of drawing to a close. So, um, Aaron, if you just wanted to speak for a moment about the kind of, main takeaway that you want people to want to take from this chapter, but also when the book is released, what do you kind of want to suggest and say um, about this kind of, about this world? Yeah, so I think it's that um, colonial Jamaica um, is unique in many ways in its demography, um, in, in its being a very brutal slave-owning society, um, in the very deadliness of this place, right? More, it, the mortality rates were higher there than any other British colony. And it created particular spaces for women, um, both white women and free women of color, to, to own property and to take part in the slave system in ways which were really quite unprecedented. Um, um, within a, like a broader British context. Um, but that also meant that their participation in this slaveholding system gave them lots of power. It challenged uh, sort of structures of gender and racial power at work in that place, and also gave them power over the bodies of enslaved people. Um, so I think that would be it. You know, thinking about the position of these free women of color as as really important economic agents and their role in shaping this free black community through networks of property, kinship, and commerce, um, but also how, you know, of course, they themselves were exploited in some ways, too. 
Yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, so I hope you enjoyed that. I, for one, thought I learned a lot. I know almost nothing about this um, particular <laughs> context. So thank you, Erin, for coming in. And thank you, Shay, for helping out with the questions and for asking your own. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to read the book. Thank yeah. you. When, Thank you. When are we roughly expecting it, or are you not sure? Uh, hopefully 2024. Perfect. Yeah. We'll, we'll look out. We'll be sure to give you a tweet. <laughs> Thank you Thank very you. much. <laughs> and that was Dr. Erin Trahey discussing a chapter from her upcoming book project with myself and Shay Hendry. I hope you enjoyed the episode and the last podcast before Christmas. Have a lovely break, and we'll be back with you in the new year. Stay well, and goodbye.